One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast and radio show that wields the mighty power of the song story and the almost magical way music becomes entwined with our memories and lives. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Craig Pittman. Craig's a native Floridian born in Pensacola. He studied journalism at Troy State University in Alabama, where he says his muckraking work for the student paper prompted an agitated dean to label him as the most destructive force on campus. Since then, he has covered a variety of new newspaper beats, and as he puts it, quite a few natural disasters, including hurricanes, wildfires, and the Florida legislature. Craig covered environmental issues for the Tampa Bay Times for three decades, winning state and national awards. These days, he writes a weekly column for the Florida Phoenix and co-hosts the Welcome to Florida podcast. He's also the author of six books, including Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country, which made it to the New York Times bestsellers list, Cat Tales. The Wild Weird Battle to Save the Florida Panther, which earned him the Rachel Carson Award from the National Sierra Club, and his latest, The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. We caught up with Craig from the studios of WUSF Public Media in Tampa. Hey there, Craig Pittman. How are you today? Um, it's Friday. I'm happy. <laughs> It's uh, cheers to that. So when I Googled your name, now I I know you, I've had you on Gulf Coast Life before, you know, I know kind of your deal. And I, when I Googled your name, I was really surprised to see that you were a former Marine and professional wrestler. But then I realized that was a different Craig Pittman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and people get us confused all the time because we look exactly alike. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you also didn't do mixed martial arts, I'm guessing. Probably not. No, no. It just felt like that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, did you listen to music uh, like in the car on your way to the station up there in Tampa this morning? Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What were you listening to? Uh, our car has Sirius XM, so I was flipping back and forth between uh, the Tom Petty channel and the, uh, the Soul Music channel, uh, the Groove, which plays a lot of funk, you know, kind of depending on which way the traffic was going. Do you ever listen to those NPR stations up there? Uh, sure, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to the beginning. Uh, you are a true Floridian, as I understand it, born in Pensacola. How would you describe the musical background of your childhood there? Oh, gosh. Uh, it was e- eclectic, but a little quirky. Um, uh, my dad, big country music fan, or as w- he called it, slip, slide, step, and stomp music. Uh, and, you know, we'd be getting ready for church, ready to go to church in the morning. And, and my dad, who could not carry a tune in a bucket but loved to sing, he'd be singing, uh, you know, a few verses of Johnny Cash's Cocaine Blues while he was getting dressed for church. <laughs> <laughs> you know, song about murder and drug abuse, um, <laughs> you know, to, to get ready for church. Uh, my mom had uh, uh, more, uh, her taste ran more to pop music and uh, singers, so she listened to. Uh, you know, Engelbert Humperdinck, Tom Jones, ABBA. Um, the one country artist she liked was Jim Reeves. So, you know, th- those were kind of my influences. And then uh, I would I periodically went over to visit my grandmother and, and stay with her over in Pace. And she was a big fan of big band music. And so I, I discovered I really liked jazz thanks to her. So, you know, listening to Tommy Dorsey and, and stuff like that sort of led me into really listening to a lot of jazz when I was a kid. Hmm. Did you grow up on the beach? Seems like if you grew up in Pensacola, that'd be a beach kid thing. Uh, we went to the beach a lot, but uh, no, I didn't grow up on the beach. We, we were more inland. And, uh, you know, my parents, also Florida natives, uh, they come from, you know, inland areas. Uh, you know, both of them grew up on farms. In fact, my dad's mom was a sharecropper for a while trying to you know, she'd beca- she was a widow, so she had six kids she had to feed, so she became a sharecropper. Um, and then on the other side of the family, on my mom's side, uh, my grandfather was a, a farmer and also worked at the Navy Yard. So, you know, it was, it, 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 was, it was, you went to the beach when you had time, and it was a fun thing to do, but mostly you had to work, you know, in their lives, so... I grew up in Fort Myers, and we have a beach, and I did the same thing. So I guess it doesn't make sense to say you must be a beach person because you grew up near the beach. Um, can you describe the panhandle vibe 
as compared to Florida's other regional vibes. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very schizophrenic because on the one hand you've got that you know Florida beach uh, uh, laid back. Uh, you know, you have one life to live kind of attitude. But on the other hand, you're very close to the Bible Belt, you know, to Alabama. And, and a lot of the folks who are in the Panhandle came from Alabama and Georgia. So they've got that mindset. Um, the other thing, too, is that Pensacola is, an, is a Navy town. So you got a lot of Navy guys in town looking for fun. So there are a lot of businesses set up to accommodate them. Um Maybe the best way I can sum it up is that um, there was a uh, strip joint in downtown called Trader John's that was popular with the Navy guys and with city officials. When I worked for the newspaper, that's where we'd go look for city officials after six o'clock. And it actually, you know, it actually shows up. In uh, in the first Top Gun movie, although by a different name, they call it TJ's, <laughs> and uh, and it's now there's a display in the historical museum there in Pensacola, a recreation of Trader John's bar <laughs> is set up there without the strippers, of course. But you know how where else would you find a historical display of a famous strip joint? <laughs> you know. That's hilarious. You know, I was just realizing my first taste of Florida was Pensacola because in the early 80s, uh, right around, you know, maybe even late 70s, I think, my mom and my brother and sister and my cousin drove down from Kansas City to Pensacola and we stayed at the Days Inn. And I have some some deep memories of Pensacola. I didn't even remember that until we were just you were describing the Pensacola scene. Um, you know, back to music. If you if I ask you to try to think back to a super early musical memory, something that has music associated with, is there something that pops into your mind? An early musical memory, um, probably. Uh, you know, Jerry Reed. Um, you know, listening to to him his songs on the on my dad's truck radio. You know, he's playing all these country songs, and a lot of them are just eye-rollingly bad, you know, George Jones and Tammy Wynette singing about, we're just an old pair of sneakers and we've been in the closet too long. I'm just like, oh my God, that's so bad. But then Jerry Reed would come on and his songs were, were clever and, uh, and, and they would make you laugh and they were also pretty well played. And so uh, Amos Moses, for instance, where he sings about, you know, uh, Amos Moses was a Cajun, lived way down in the swamp. Hundred alligators for a living. He just knock them in the head with a stomp, and uh, you know they created this great picture of life out in the swamps, and that sort of intrigued me. Sort of my earliest, <laughs> my earliest experience of being interested in swamps and wetlands and so forth. So um, yeah, probably that. Was Jerry Reed the guy in the Smokey and the Bandit movies? Yes, he was. He was Snowman Cletus, uh, and sang, of course, sang all the songs on the soundtrack too. He's bounded down and all that kind of stuff. I just recently watched the first one and then the second one and then the first 20 minutes of the third one again. <laughs> Farther than I did, man. <laughs> uh, here's what you need to do, though. You need to find a Burt Reynolds movie called uh, Gator that stars uh, Jerry Reed as the bad guy. And he's actually really good playing the villain, playing this sort of Dixie Mafia character. And they end up having a fist fight and all that kind of stuff. Do you remember the first music you owned? That was yours somehow. Casper the Friendly Ghost. It was the soundtrack for the cartoon. Not something I'm proud of, but (laughs) there it is. Were you gifted that or did you spend your allowance money on it? Uh, I think somebody gave it to me. I think probably my parents or one of my aunts gave it to me. Do you remember the first time you saw music performed live that wasn't like a choir or maybe a church concert or something like that? Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, we had... uh, we had church music all the time. My parents took me to church, you know, every time the doors open, at least three times a week. So uh, I heard a lot of church choir music. And, um, and then I went to a, our school where, you know, we had, a, we had had an emphasis on music. And actually, I um, I snuck into the second grade choir under false pretenses. Um, I had tried out and been rejected. And then I kind of slipped in unnoticed anyway. And they you know, once they figured out I was I I was there, they just kind of left me there. They figured, well, if he's if he's that crazy about it, we'll just let him keep going. <laughs> so <laughs> I kept uh, kept singing with the with the school choir all the way through my senior year, and then some in my college uh, college career. Um, but live music, I can't really remember any live music until I went off to college, and uh, um, 
<laughs> I don't know if you can count Christopher Cross. Two of the women on the student newspaper staff dragged me to a, the Christopher Cross concert because he was he was hot right then, and um, I was really tired from working on the student newspaper. And so, you know, when the music started, I fell asleep and I slept through the whole concert. And then when it was over, everybody stood up and I kind of got jostled and went, oh, oh, okay, <laughs> and clapped my hands. So I don't know if you can count that one. But uh, the first one I really remember is uh, Jimmy Buffett came and played at, at my college. And I, I remember that. I mostly remember it because one of the women from the student newspaper who was there and was singing along, she um, had misunderstood the words to one of Jimmy Buffett's songs. Uh, why don't we? And she was singing it as, why don't we get drunk at school? <laughs> Which is, it's, that's not the word. The word is screw. <laughs> and we were like, that was the radio edit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were like, okay, that's that's not the words. What? <laughs> um, before we get to your first song, uh, do you ever play any musical instruments growing up or do you now? Uh, the musical instrument I play the most is the radio. And um, I attempted to learn the banjo, believe it or not, uh, and uh, my parents actually splurged and bought me a banjo, and I learned how to do a, you know, the the uh, five note three finger roll, and then gave up and I said, "This is, this is way beyond my pitiful abilities." So singing in the singing in the school choir, singing in the church choir, that was that was about it. I was a great monotone baritone. <laughs> um, all right, let's do your first song, the, uh, the, A Man of Many Words. Would you like to tell a story or would you like to just listen to it? How would you like to proceed? Well, let me tell it. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, we in American life, we tend to really look up to the man of few words, you know, the man of action who doesn't say much, like uh, Gary Cooper in High Noon, uh, John Wick, to mention another example of somebody who's very terse and basically lets their gun or fist do the talking. I'm the opposite. I am a man of many words and uh, have made a living that way for 40 years uh, writing um, uh, and talking to some extent. The, um, uh, it started when I was a kid. My, my, my dad, great joke teller, great storyteller, taught me to appreciate the value of a good story uh, and would take me hunting. And, you know, the part of the, our hunting trips that I enjoyed was not the hunting part, not the walking through the woods part. It was the hanging around with his hunting buddies afterwards and listening to them tell lies and, um, and kidding with each other. And then my mom taught me to appreciate a good book. She got me my first uh, library card when I was six and told the librarians, don't just keep him in the children's section. He can check out a book from anywhere in the library, which is just a great gift. And I, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I do now. I realize now what a, what a wonderful gift she gave me. Um, uh, Pensacola is the rainiest city in Florida. It's second rainiest in America after Mobile, which is about an hour away. And so a lot of times when I wanted to go outside and play when I was a kid, I couldn't because it was pouring down rain. So um, when I got too old to draw with crayons, my mom gave me her uh, portable Smith Corona, and I would sit there and carefully tap out little stories about things, um, you know, made up things like, you know, oh, I was a great baseball pitcher who also solved crimes, or, uh, you know, I was a World War One fighter pilot and uh, and also good at baseball. And that experience kind of led me into realizing that instead of being a baseball pitcher or a fighter pilot, maybe I should be a writer for a living and wound up on my school yearbook staff. If I ever, if I ever wrote a, a, a memoir, I think the title of it would be this song, the title of the song, Man of Many Words. It's a song by Buddy Guy, who I got to see in, in Tampa. I got to see him at Skipper Smokehouse. Great concert. Um, and talks about how, you know, it's about a guy who can talk his way out of anything. And uh, uh, I don't have that ability, but I am a guy who, who uh, uh, uses words and uh, really relishes them, enjoys reading somebody else's great words, great writing, and tries to live up to that myself. All right. Well, let's listen to it then. This is Wordsmith, Greg Pittman's first song on today's episode of Three Song Stories. Can I want you? Oh, I, I can wait and tell you after after it's over. The, you know, when I looked on the back of the LP, uh, I realized, you know, this is this great Chicago blues. It's from Florida. They recorded this at Criteria Studios down in Miami, the place that gave us Casey and the Sunshine Band, George McRae, Rock Your Baby. You know, all kinds of stuff like that. And that was sort of my one of my first clues that, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on in Florida 
that influences the rest of the country, and we probably don't even realize it. Hmm. Well, let's listen to it then. This is Craig Pittman's first song on today's episode of Three Song Stories. This is A Man of Many Words by Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. It's from their 1972 album, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells Play the Blues. It was a great concert. Buddy Guy, he had like a 40-foot extension cord on his guitar, and he actually came, at one point, he came down off the stage playing, walked all the way out to the, to the bathrooms, Went into the men's room, came out, went into the ladies' room and came out, and still playing, you know, and then went back up on stage. It was it's just a great performance. Uh, how many shows have you seen there over the years? I've seen like three or four, and it's always like such a good vibe. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I couldn't count. I mean, um, seen some great stuff there, eat, certainly eating some great fried mullet um, and some catfish there. So in high school, we're going to go back to your high school years now and then work our way up to your career in journalism and writing. Um, where did you fit into the equation when you were in high school? You, you wrote for the student newspaper, I think, and, or, you know, just no, not in high school. I work, work, I work for the student yearbook. Um, oh, the yearbook, yearbook. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was working for the yearbook. And, you know, I, I sort of felt adrift until I stumbled into that. Um, and it didn't really fit in anywhere, kind of hung out with the, you know, the guys who were kind of the outcasts, not the popular kids or anything like that. And um, uh, one day in my, uh, was it 10th grade, late 10th or no, or no it was junior year, I guess, uh, the editor of the yearbook came by and said, some people think you'd be good working for the yearbook, but I don't know. You, you're welcome to try out if you want. Well, <laughs> he had picked the right, just the absolutely right psychological approach to get me interested because I was like, I'll show that SOB. <laughs> so I applied for the yearbook staff and sure enough, they, they took me in and made me, uh, made me the guy writing the copy. And uh, uh, I, I discovered I actually enjoyed doing that, enjoyed the camaraderie, the, you know, being around all these very creative people. Um, and uh, uh, that sort of set me on my course for life, you know, the, of writing about what I was seeing and what, you know, what people were doing, that kind of stuff. It was, it, he, he was doing me a favor and I, I, I was mad at him for it until I realized what he'd done. <laughs> well, and you know, newspaper is the closest thing you're going to get to like sort of that newsroom vibe because it's a team of people trying to put together information and then present it in a way that, you know, has photos and it's laid out and all that stuff. Oh yeah. Well, and we, and we were all, we were sort of friendly rivals with the student newspaper folks. I mean, we, <clears throat> our offices were adjoining and there was, the wall didn't go all the way to the top so we could hear each other back and forth and we could yell insults back and forth too. Um, did you uh, have any musical memories associated with your time in high school? What was the musical scene like? I'm trying to figure out. I don't know what era this was or what was like the popular music of 1978. Uh, and uh, the Carpenters were very big for the people running the yearbook. So we listened to the Carpenters a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until I got to college that I sort of got into got, and worked for the student newspaper that we started playing a lot of other different stuff. Did you write any of, you know, of your own personal writing during high school, like short fiction, poetry, that sort of thing? Or was uh, the, the yearbook, you know, your main outlet? For um, I, tr I was trying to write fiction. It was very amateurish. It was it was bad. It was very bad. <laughs> there's I think there's a, a box full of it sitting in, in my laundry room that has not been looked at in 40 years and probably should never be seen. I should probably burn that before the kids find it because <laughs> it's so awful. <laughs> like, how did this guy ever get anything published? <laughs> well, you got to make all the mistakes before you stop making them. Yeah, I guess. Or before you make new ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, that's called learning too, I think. Yeah. Um, so you went to school at Troy State uh, University in Alabama. Did you go there for journalism or kind of, you know, what was your goal at that point and why did you choose that school? Um, I chose that school because they offered me a scholarship, a full scholarship, and I was so stupid I didn't understand that you could apply for scholarships elsewhere. So, <laughs> so I thought, well, they're the only ones offering me a scholarship. I guess I have to go there. So <laughs> it was. It turned out to be a good idea because uh, uh, the folks I wound up going to school with uh, were actually really, really sharp and the uh, and taught me a lot. I'm still friends with most of them, and uh, we had one really great professor, uh, Judy Means Wagnon, who who just died a couple of weeks ago. Um, who was just a wonderful person and did all kinds of great stuff. Uh, it, one of the best things she did um, is one one day in a, in a one, and we had a number of theater majors who were 
who were uh, taking journalism classes because they wanted to go into TV. And so in one day in a journal, in one of our journalism classes, she got into a, a huge argument with one of the theater majors and he ended up cussing her out and storming out of the class. And we were all shocked. And then she turned to the class and said, okay, you have five minutes, write what you just saw. And we were, we were stunned, but she had a point. She was making us realize that eyewitness testimony is not reliable because everybody had a different version of what they saw. And, you know, she had set this up with this theater major just to make that point to us. And that was the kind of clever stuff she would do. Took us to Montgomery to see the state capitol and teach us how to write about government. Took us out to restaurants so we'd learn how to write reviews of food and other things. Just to, and and um, she lived in Montgomery. So uh, she once invited s- several of us raggedy student journalists over to uh, to her house for a party and invited her next-door neighbor over. Her next-door neighbor was F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zella Fitzgerald's only daughter, Scotty, uh, Scotty Smith. And so uh, she, you know, so Mrs. Wagnon told me, okay, I'm going to introduce you to Scotty Fitzgerald Smith. Don't ask about her parents. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> well, shoot, what do I say then? <laughs> we wound up talking about Alabama politics, which turned out to be a pretty safe subject. <laughs> So I can say I met F. Scott Fitzgerald's daughter, and uh, <laughs> your 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 bio, your bio seems to indicate that you were considered somewhat of a troublemaker with your words while in college. Can you flesh that out? Uh, the dean of the school of journalism was not happy about the stuff we were writing in the student newspaper. There was an attitude among Troy State administrators that the newspaper should be a PR organ for the college, and it should write lots of happy talk stuff. And we came in, and and the our editor, a guy named David McFarland, uh, we came in with the attitude of, we're a newspaper, we need to tell students what's going on. And so we wrote stories about drug busts in the dorms. We wrote about the State Ethics Commission doing an investigation of the university president. Um, we wrote about how the university had a yacht that it maintained for lobbying purposes down in Orange Beach. And I actually drove down there and found it and wrote about it. Um, uh, I, I kind of made common cause with the the uh, radio guy uh, who was there for for uh, for the, to run the radio station, uh, and we we kind of jokingly called ourselves the Woodward and Bernstein of Troy, Alabama. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was it was a really great learning experience um, about what an impact that words can have, and the the journalism dean was so upset because he he was sure we were risking his job and he actually told me i was the most destructive force on campus and i don't think he meant it as a compliment so <laughs> but i I, you know I treated if, it that way <laughs> well of course do you know if that sort of you know more nose to the grindstone journalism you know ethos maintained itself there after you left or was that an era that you were a part of i i think it comes and goes in waves. Does that make sense? According to the seriousness yeah, yeah. of the journalists there. Uh, they invited me back uh, as a distinguished alumni uh, a few years ago, and uh, they asked me, what, what are you going to talk about? And I said, the title of my talk will be How to Become the Most Destructive Force on Campus. <laughs> it, was, it was very well attended, and I got applause at the end. And, you know, and none of the administration people came down and gave me detention or anything like that, which was nice. So, or decided I I still owed the money. <laughs> so, so I think there's still an interest in doing that kind of journalism and doing that kind of uh, reporting, and I'm happy to see it because, you know, um, what is it? What is it? Whitney Houston said, "Children are our future." So, there you go. Mm. We have a we have a program here. We, uh, you know, the NPR station has been here for you know since FGCU opened in the late '90s, but we've never had a really close relationship with the journalism program. And frankly, it really wasn't much of a program until fairly recently. But we now have a partnership with the program called Democracy Watch, and we've got upperclassmen journalism students that are going out and covering local politics, county commission meetings, city council meetings, and producing stories for us for print on the web and for radio. And it's been a great experience to see them do the kind of work that really, as you know, isn't being done as well as it used to be. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's great to hear. I'm glad to hear it because it's it's been sad to watch 
the decline of local journalism, so much of what you hear and read these days is just regurgitated press releases. And it's always heartening to see reporters who go out and do their own reporting and tell people, hey, this is what's really going on. This is how they're spending your tax money. Don't you want to know that? I sure do. Um, any musical memories tied to your time there in uh, at Troy? Uh, what is it called? Troy State. Troy State. It's Troy State. Then I think they just now they just they've dropped the state. It's just Troy University. We always used to joke it was home. That's of, why. Yeah. What were you going to say? That's why I was confused. Any music? Any musical memories like concerts you went to, house parties, you know, musical times with friends, things like that? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, uh, you know, um, the best concert, the two best concerts I saw there were one was Harry Chapin solo which was, he was terrific. And um, uh, another, you know, another writer who paid close attention to, to his words and what he was saying. And then um, Hall & Oates. We, I'm still a huge fan of Hall & Oates. They, they were great. They were, they put on, I had, and I had really didn't know much about them before the show. And then afterwards, I was like, holy cow, I've got to get, <laughs> I've got to get all these albums because these guys are awesome. Um, and the, the, the nice thing was, here's the other big memory, is that two of my fellow students realized that I had spent all this time um, listening to jazz and I knew about, you know, Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane and stuff like that, didn't really know anything about rock and roll. And so they took it upon themselves to educate me. So uh, Tom Davis and Tim Kurtz took me under their wing and said, okay, here's what you need to know. And they started me off with the American Graffiti album, you know, listening to all that 50s doo-wop. And then sort of took me forward from there up to uh, Springsteen, who was just, you know, sort of coming on the scene then in the in the late 70s and educated me about all these different, you know, schools and and, and patterns and genres and so forth. And um, the other the other great thing, there was a an oldie station. There was a station called WLAC out of Nashville, I think. And you could pick it up, you know, when they when the weather was clear. And so there, there really wasn't much to do in Troy. We used to joke that Troy was close to nothing but the ground. And so Sunday nights, sometimes we would hop in somebody's car and drive over to Dothan to see the, uh, to see the big uh, statue there. They have a statue of a uh, boll weevil, believe it or not. So we drive over and look at the boll weevil statue or, uh, you know, we drive to some other place. And and uh, you, because I didn't drink, I was usually the designated driver. So I would I would be driving people and we would listen to the oldies show out of uh, from WLAC. We listen to all this great, you know, all these great 50s numbers and stuff like that. And uh, Tom Davis used to used to pretend to bang on the dash and demand they play Blue Moon by the Marcells, which. <laughs> <laughs> which he claimed was the the ultimate achievement in American rock and roll. So, <laughs> hmm. Um, okay. Well, we'll get we'll get to your post college career after your second song, but let's head there next. So, how would you like to go? Um. Well, uh, you know, maybe the best way to do it is is college is I I was in college in Alabama and I wanted to get out. Uh, I wanted to go back to Florida. I really missed being close to the water. I miss the weather. I miss the people. And, um, and so I really wanted to return to Florida. At, at one point I would try, I would try to bring bits of Florida back with me to Alabama. Uh, at one point, the Florida legislature being the, the always on top of things guys that they are, they accidentally deregulated the psychology and psychiatry industry so that you didn't need a, a state permit to set yourself up as a practicing psychiatrist, you could just get an occupational license. So I went down to the county clerk's office in Pensacola and got an occupational license declaring me that I was, I was a psychiatrist. And uh, people were doing that. <laughs> they, were, they were doing it for their dogs. They were doing it for their kids just as a, as a joke. And it was good for six months. They finally re-regulated the industry. So I took that back up to Troy with me and found uh, they had the the print shop was next door to the um, the campus print shop was right next door to the student newspaper and I found where they had printed up a big sign about it to go in the health clinic about you know sign in and report to the nurse and please wait for the doctor and so I put that up over my desk with the with the um, uh, occupational license declaring me to be a psychiatrist and <laughs> other kids would come by and go is that real and I'd say oh yeah that's how we roll in Florida and so, but I was, uh, that's where I first realized Florida's different. Florida is really special. And I really love Florida and all its quirks and, and peculiarities. And so where's this song come in? Uh, 
you know, I listened to a lot of, uh, you know, because I was in Alabama, I listened to a lot of Southern rock during those days, uh, you know, Almond Brothers, Leonard Skinner, et cetera, and slowly realized that those were actually Florida bands playing that stuff. And one of the songs that was really big right then was Flirting with Disaster by Molly Hatchett, a Jacksonville band, much like Almond Brothers and, and uh, uh, Leonard Skinner came from Jacksonville. And uh, it just seemed to me the, to be the perfect Florida song. It, it just really sort of sums up everything. I, and I have contended in print several times that Flirting with Disaster ought to be our state anthem instead of, you know, Way Down Upon the Swanee River. Uh, by Stephen Foster, a guy who never set foot in Florida. Well, I've never heard this song. I wasn't born in Florida, but I've lived here since, well, I guess it's coming up on 45 years or something like that. So I'm going to imagine this being our state song. This is uh, Flirting with Disaster by Molly Hatchett from the 1979 album of the same name. It's Craig Pittman's second song today on Three Song Stories. Would you say that we're flirting with disaster more now than when you heard that song or less now? Oh, more. <laughs> definitely more. Um, uh, you know, because uh, Florida is the state considered the state most vulnerable to rising sea levels from climate change. Uh, on top of all the other stuff that happens here, we get, we get more lightning than the rest of the Western Hemisphere. We get more sinkholes than any other state. We get uh, more shark bites than anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, we get hit by more hurricanes than any other state. Um, you know, and plus there's that creepy clown college down in Sarasota. So, you know, there's lots of things that threaten our <laughs> lives uh, as Floridians. And we just kind of, you know, blow it off and like, yeah, well, you know, uh, come on down. <laughs> come join us and, you know, bring your money. Um, so <laughs> it was to me, it's the perfect it really is the perfect song for Florida. And uh, uh, every time I hear it come on, I'm, I, I just get this big, goofy grin on my face because I'm like, yeah, that's our that's a Florida song right there. That's it. <laughs> is that kind of music that sort of Southern rock, uh, you know, indicative of your musical tastes these days or not? Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to narrow down my musical taste. I mean, I've got a whole playlist that I made of Southern music that includes not just flirting with disaster, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, Erica Badu and Southern gal, um, uh, um, you know, uh, Mavis Staples singing about, uh, singing civil rights anthem, uh, you know, Tom Petty, uh, and so forth. So, you know, it's, I have a, I have very eclectic, I have a lot of other playlists. Uh, there's an old school rap one, um, there's a garage rock one. There's one for for blues. Uh, you know, different. I listen to different stuff when I'm writing, and I uh, I know some some friends who have to have, have absolute silence when they write. I can't do that. I need I need that music to to fuel me and keep me going. And you know, sometimes I pick up ideas from from the music. Sometimes it you know, or sometimes it's just the tempo that keeps me alert and keeps me paying attention and working. What was your first uh, like real journalism job once you got finished with college? Uh, I did an internship with the Pensacola News Journal, my hometown paper, and then they they <clears throat> that did not uh, freak them out as much as it probably should have, and so they hired me to come back. Uh, and I spent five years there. I was uh, covered county government, and uh, then they sent me three years in a row. They sent me to cover the state legislature, which was just a fascinating experience. I got to meet. Uh, a legendary reporter, Lucy Morgan. And even today, I ask myself, what would Lucy do? Whenever I'm in some strange situation, I'm, I ask, what would Lucy do? Uh, because Lucy was, you know, she's the she is the ultimate sort of uh, Florida reporter. She won a Pulitzer for taking on the Pasco Sheriff's Department and uh, and exposing their wrongdoing. And even though they, you know, they they did everything they could to throw obstacles in her path. So, um Pensacola was a good a good experience for me, a good exposure. As I mentioned, we would, you know, we'd track down city officials at Trader John's, the strip joint after hours. Uh, got to be good. I, I learned that the people who knew what were really going, what was really going on in the courthouse, were the commissioner's secretaries. So I made sure to go by and talk to them just about every day and find out what was going on. And um, uh, you know, it, it's. It's great to learn how government works and then be able to tell people 
uh, you know, tell the readers, hey, you know, this is what the county commission's up to. This is what they're doing. You know, sometimes they would, you know, they'd they'd have these meetings in the in the county commission chambers where they'd be sitting up on the dais and there'd be there's like a little ledge in front of them and people couldn't see it if you were sitting right in front of them. You could see it if you were sitting to the side is that they'd be discussing an issue, but behind the the little ledge, they'd be turning their thumbs up or thumbs down, basically in, indicating before the vote which way they were going to vote. And so, you know, it's just these, these little ruses, these little ways to get around things. Um, one of the commissioners I covered uh, actually ran a, a, uh, a funeral home with a drive through window. Um, you know, the, the later, later four of the commissioners wound up being uh, indicted in a, a bribery scheme. Uh, one of them had, had passed along a, a, a bribe. It was ten thousand dollars in a cook pot. <laughs> you know, it's just a just a great a great scene, a great thing to cover, uh, a great place to cover. And uh, Pensacola, while I was there, uh, they had a, the first uh, abortion clinic bombing in the United States. And so that was, you know, something else that we, it was a, it's a huge issue. It's still a huge issue. And we covered it. We covered the heck out of it. And I wound up covering the, the trial of, uh, of the kids and so forth. So. How many stops between uh, that paper and then winding up at the Tampa Bay Times? Oh, just one. Um, I went from Pensacola to the Sarasota paper. I, I, after five years, I'd gotten so sick of government coverage. I was looking for a place where I would I'd be there was no government, so I'd be forced to do something else. So I, the Sarasota paper hired me. I had, had several friends that had gone there, and they said, "Come on down and join us." And I got hired to cover the town of Englewood, which is an unincorporated town that actually straddles the county line between Sarasota and Charlotte County. And I thought, "Hey, this is great, no government." And then I get there and go, "Wait, what am I going to write about?" <laughs> you know, there's no there's no government here whatsoever. What can I do? So that was a that was an interesting year. But I learned a lot. And I, I actually lived on the beach for a year with no TV and um, uh, swam a lot. I read 100 books that year. Uh, and it was a it was a real education. And then uh, and then some friends were telling me, oh, you've got you. You don't have a TV. Oh, you're missing out, man. There's this great show on TV. We watch it every week. It's called Miami Vice. You need to check it out. So I went and <laughs> bought a TV set just to see Miami Vice. <laughs> Can you, so you wound up at the Tampa Bay Times in like 98. Is that right? No, no, it was before that. I wound up there in 89. Um, they, oh, 89. I must've had a, a, a transposition in my copy and paste. Yeah. Um, the Sarasota paper sent me to cover Hurricane Hugo. And I went up there with a photographer and we, you know, we wound up filing several stories from there. And that really impressed an editor at the at the Times. So they hired me. So I can say I'm one of the few people who benefited from that disaster. Um, and they put me into another bureau. You know, in, in, Sarasota, in Sarasota, I had made it. I spent a year in Inglewood and then got moved to what else? The county government beat in downtown Sarasota. So I'm back covering government news again. And actually proposed switching over to covering the environment, which they, they hadn't, they didn't have an environment reporter at that point. And they said, sure. So I did that for about eight months and really enjoyed that and was hoping I could get back to that. And the, uh, times hired me and put me back in a bureau, but I wound up working with some great editors there and I learned a lot from them. Uh, it was in the Palm Harbor Bureau, uh, so near Tarpon Springs. So, uh, and it, this incorporate unincorporated area of East Lake, uh, where a lot of stuff was going on and um, wound up uh, getting assigned to go cover Hurricane Andrew then in 1992. And the editors really liked my coverage there and wound up moving me down to the main office to cover, first to cover criminal courts and then uh, ultimately moved me over to covering the environment again. So once again, I benefited from a big disaster. Just like Molly Hatchett. Yeah, just like Molly Hatchett. Can you describe the scope and the vibe at the Tampa Bay Times in the what was then the late '80s? Because I know that was a whole different time for newspapers than anything like we've got today. Yeah, I mean, the the great thing is there was this real attention to writing. Uh, you know, before uh, the papers I worked at, m- most of the concentration was on let's go out and cover this. Let's get this. How, what's the best way to cover it? And at the Times, there was much more attention to. Uh, and I should mention my, my my main editor in Palm Harbor, a guy named John Cutter, was just great. He and he would um, I'd turn in a story and he he'd call me and say, "Craig, come in here and let me tell you how great this story is that you've turned in." And then he would be telling me the things he liked, 
And then he would sort of segue into, now on this sentence, have you really thought about this? What if we worded it a different way? What have you thought about? And and it was just, it'd be like, yes, sir, whatever you want to do is great, you know, instead of, you know, hey, I'm going to crank up my chainsaw and chop it up. The, the, uh, and I, I learned a lot from, from John Cutter. And, uh, I ended up later writing stories for another great editor, a guy named Richard Bachman, um, who was our sort of long-term editor. And uh, Bachman was about like that, where he would, you know, he would tell you what he liked, and then he'd move on to, let's think about this. Is there a better way to move into this paragraph? Is there a better transition? You know, that kind of stuff. So um, those folks were really good. And it was very supportive. Other papers that I have heard about, their newsrooms were cutthroat. You know, there's constant competition. People were stealing stories back and forth and so forth. And at the times, I never experienced that. It was more of a, uh, you know, let's all work together. Let's help each other out. Uh, you know, hey, I've got a great story, but it's not on my beat. Maybe I can pass it on to somebody else. So, uh, you know, for instance, I, I, when I was covering the court beat, I heard about two women who'd been arrested in Bel Air Shore for drinking coffee at, at sunrise because you weren't supposed to have an open beverage out on the beach. And I passed it on to our reporter who's covering the beaches, who just went to town with it and got a 1A story out of it. And, you know, and people are like, oh, are you mad she took it? I'm like, no, I gave it to her. It was it was a tip. It's, you know, it's a great story, and she knows that community better. So, you know, it, I wish all newspapers were like that. These days, uh, so many newsrooms don't exist anymore. People are working from home. You know, it's very decentralized. And I think a lot of the younger reporters are really missing out by not having that sense of, you know, hey, I can talk to some of my colleagues. I can find out about things, you know, get some guidance, that kind of thing. Um, any musical stories that you can point us to over your career? I know there's at least one that involves Elvis, sort of. <laughs> oh, well, um, uh, are you talking about the courthouse in Inverness? Uh, the one I was thinking of was like Elvis's manager was also like he ran like a dog pound. Oh or yes, something. yes, <laughs> Colonel Tom. Yeah, uh, I got a tip that Colonel Tom Parker had. Uh, you know, once again, here's the Florida connection, which I you know I, I loved writing about and wrote about in my book, Oh Florida. The the yeah, Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, whose name was not Colonel Tom Parker, and who was actually kind of a. a fugitive from justice, uh, had worked for a time as the dog catcher in Tampa. And uh, I w- approached the folks at the at the Humane Society over there, and they're like, yeah, it's, a tr- it's true. He was a big innovator for us. He actually got us a lot of funding. Well, it turned out some of the stunts he pulled p- specifically to raise money were that. They were just stunts. And so he had set up this uh, pet cemetery at the at the Humane Society, where he got like scrap lumber and stuff like that for the for the markers, and then he got people to you know basically pay big money to bury their pets there. <laughs> it was just a, it was a it was a real scam, and it worked. And the the pet cemetery is still there. <laughs> there they were in the process, and the the hook for the story was they were going to have to move it because they were expanding the Humane Society offices. So um, just you know. It, it was just a. He's just a. It was just a classic Florida con man, and happened to stumble on. He he saw Elvis perform and said, "I need to get a piece of that." <laughs> and he did. <laughs> he yeah, he definitely did. <laughs> um, you've written uh, six nonfiction books. Um, have you worked on or considered working on something where you make it all up a uh, novel? Um, I have tried. Uh, you know, the the uh, Carl Hyacinth famously said he doesn't make anything up. He just changes the names. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the problem with writing fiction about Florida is nothing you come up with is nearly as wild as what actually happens. And then if you try and write that, people are like, no, no, I don't believe it. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've written some short stories that have gotten published uh, there was uh, one I was ag- that was actually based on a news story I covered where um, this uh, guy with Alzheimer's, he had decided he was his son was coming to move him into a, um, a nursing home. And about a week before that happened, he got in his car and decided he was going to drive somewhere. He, he had a destination in mind, but he was not going the way he should go. And he wound up running into a pedestrian, a homeless guy who was crossing the street. And the guy got stuck in the windshield and 
he stayed there and the the driver kept going and didn't stop till he got to the toll booth on the Skyway Bridge. And the toll collector freaked out, understandably, and called the cops. And the cops came in and, you know, and managed to remove the body and so forth. And so, uh, you know, and, and it was just a horrible thing for her to go through. And the late night comics just had a field day with it. Oh, this is what the, this is what passes for a, for, you know, for a commuter lane in Florida. Ha ha ha. And it's like, I don't think I'd be joking about that. So I wrote a short story imagining the viewpoint of the toll taker. Uh, you know, not right after it happened, several years later. Um, and it, it was interesting to kind of see things from that point of view. Hmm. Um, you have a podcast called Welcome to Florida. I've listened to some episodes, including yours with Ed Keeling, because I had him on Gulf Coast Life earlier this week. Um, what was it like as a print person? Oh, Bob, Ke- or Bob Keeling, yeah. Um, what was it like as a print person to start talking into microphones? Because I know print people tend to be like not microphone talkers. Well, um, <laughs> I think it, it goes back to it goes back to my dad once again. You know, <clears throat> being a storyteller and and uh, telling jokes and stories and and basically being a man of many words. Uh, uh, the podcast came about. I, I had pitched the idea of a podcast when it was with the Times, and it never got off the ground. And the uh, a, say a month or so after I got laid off by the Times, uh, I was approached by this guy named Chad Scott, who had been working in radio in Jacksonville, sports radio. He had read my book on the Florida Panther, uh, Cat Tale, The Wild Weird Battle to Save the Florida Panther, and really liked it. And he started following me on social media, and then he contacted me and said, listen, have you thought about starting a podcast? And I said, have I? Holy cow, I've got a whole list of guests already lined up. And so... Chad knew the technical side of things, and so we created this podcast. The, the conceit of it is 900 new people move to Florida every day, and nobody tells them what they've gotten themselves into. So we're trying to fill the gap. So we've done podcasts about um, cockroaches. We talked to a cockroach expert. We actually talked to a python uh, hunter uh, who eat who who enjoys cooking and eating her her uh, her the meat that she's caught. Uh, we've interviewed a gator wrangler. Uh, we interviewed Carl Hyacin, uh, Desmond Mead, the guy who got Amendment Four passed for felons to get the right to vote back. Uh, Betty Osceola, who's a uh, Miccosukee tribe elder and actually still lives and cooks outdoors. Um, you know, just fascinating people. We wrote a guy who wrote the book on the villages. And that one, you know, most of our shows are about a half an hour. That one, I think, went to a full hour because it was so fascinating. Um, we just did uh, an interview this week with two people from Eatonville, uh, the first uh, black town in America that was incorporated. It was incorporated in 1887, and it's where Zora Neale Hurston grew up. Um, so, you know, th- there's just two years later, we're still finding stuff to talk about and stuff to to, to learn about. And you know, I'm. Uh, it's a good mix. Chad is has been here about ten years. I've obviously been here almost all my life, and uh, we, you know, there's. I'm still learning stuff. We did a podcast recently about right whales, and I learned stuff I didn't know that. You know, when the right whales are down here visiting, they they come down every year in the spring to have their calves. The they don't eat. They don't eat the whole time they're here. Several months, and they just live off their blubber. Which I, I probably I should be doing that too. So. You know. <laughs> uh, well, let's do your third song now. Uh, it's Bonnie Raitt's song. How would you like to proceed? Um, let me tell the story after we play the song. That was Craig Pittman's third song today on Three Song Stories, Nick of Time by Bonnie Raitt from her 1989 album of the same name. So, Craig, what's the story with that one? So, um, that was the song my, my wife and I picked to dance to first at our, our wedding. Um, we had gotten acquainted first uh, in Pensacola. Uh, she worked for the afternoon paper. I worked for the morning paper, which should tell you how long ago it was that they had an afternoon paper. And then uh, sort of made our way to other papers and got together again in Sarasota. We were part of this group of 20-somethings that kind of hung out together and you know, went to movies and went to restaurants and so forth. And, um, you know, like like friends before friends came out. And then um, uh, one night she asked me out or one day she asked me out and we went out to dinner and it was the first time we'd sort of been one-on-one like that. And we really hit it off and we started dating. And um, 
and then I proposed to her at the bubble room <laughs> on uh, on Captiva. And uh, uh, so when we got married, we had picked this song, you know, because we were getting into our 30s. We, you know, we felt like we were running out of time and we had found just the perfect person. Um, and we given the DJ for our wedding. We got married at the old at the pier in St. Petersburg because the, the perfect place for journalists to get married is in an upside is in an inverted pyramid, of course. Uh, and so <laughs> we we gave the the DJ this long list of songs we liked the, to play, and we said, but this one's this is the one we're going to dance to. So after the wedding, uh, you know, we're going around circulating among the tables, saying hello to friends. And one of the songs the DJ cues up, you know, sort of the beginning of the reception is Shiny Happy People by R.E.M., which is a song we both love. And she grabs my hand and drags me out on the dance floor. And we start dancing to that and having fun singing along. And the DJ comes over, you know, the song's still playing and says, excuse me, did I screw up? Is this the song you're supposed to be dan- doing your first dance to? And we said, no, it's just one we really like. And so, you know, when it comes time to play the, the real first dance song just you know we'll come back out and he's like okay <laughs> we're like it's okay you didn't make a mistake it's great so I, I he was he was sort of gratified by that and my wife told him you know it's no no big deal don't worry about it and uh, it was the perfect answer because then he he did a great job of DJing the reception and everybody said it was one of the best parties they've ever been to and uh, uh, when he did finally play Nick of Time by Bonnie Raitt and you know we're slow dancing to that I promptly stepped on uh, the hem of my bride's dress and tore it. So, you know, maybe we, maybe we should have picked shiny, happy people. Maybe we should have stuck to that one. But, um, you know, I couldn't do all the things I do if it weren't for her. She is, uh, you know, very supportive. She keeps track of my schedule for me. She is my first editor. She's my best editor. You know, everything I, every book that I write, it's been through her first and she's made lots of Suge- great suggestions and great uh, had lots of great ideas and so forth. So, um, you know, it, that's why this song is is my third pick. Uh, do you and her uh, have aligning musical tastes, or if 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 there are, if not, are there any places where they diverge? I guess. Um, really, the only, you know we're 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 pretty much in sync. We <clears throat> you know I listen to a lot more obscure stuff. She really doesn't like you know a lot of the classic country that I listen to sometimes. Uh, and there's some 80s stuff she loves, and I'm like, eh. Um, she's a huge U2 fan and has been to see them multiple times. Uh, I, I went with her a, a, a couple of times and really enjoyed the concerts. Uh, but really, the, you know, the only the, the biggest source of tension in our marriage is baseball. Uh, she's a big Yankees fan. I'm a big Red Sox fan, and we both have been that way since the 70s. And so uh, the the wedding cake actually had us dressed in... Uh, Red Sox and Yankees outfits, you know, <laughs> the 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 little bride and groom figures on on top. Uh, a friend of ours took our picture wearing wearing our team gear, and uh, it was pretty funny. Um, and <laughs> and so uh, you know, whenever they play each other, I just can't watch. I can't I can't watch it. I just can't. <laughs> so, <laughs> are you ready for a speed round, Craig Pittman? Yes. Okay. Do you have a nickname that stuck over the course of your life that you'd be willing to share? Mm, no. Craig is short enough. I don't really need a nickname. Is it Craig short for something? No. No. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> but there's a musical connection, if you, if you got a minute. My my parents named me Craig because that's the name of the actor who starred in Peter Gunn, uh, the, the TV show. And so, um, uh, you know, that. so I've always liked that. I always play that that song, some version of that song, on Facebook when when my birthday rolls around. You uh, you sang in a choir when you were younger. Do you do karaoke as a grown up? No, but I would love to. I've never been to a place that had karaoke, and but I would love to. Although maybe my wife would probably not like that. <laughs> but I would. I I love to sing. I sing in the car when when the kids were little. I sang to them all the time. Uh, you know, uh, rocking them to sleep or giving them a bath or anything like that. Uh, any excuse to sing. Um, one of them, uh, I went up to pick him up in, in, uh, in Gainesville and was driving him back and he, he had to do some work. So he was sitting in the back seat the whole way. He's like, he was a Lincoln lawyer and he's tapping away on his keyboard. And so I, you know, since we weren't talking, I just went ahead and sang along with all the songs on my iPod that were playing. And when we got back, I said, I hope I didn't distract you with all that singing. He said, oh, I had my headphones in. I didn't hear any of it. <laughs> 
If you were a championship wrestler, Craig Pittman, what music would you use to enter the arena? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, you know, probably Man of Many Words. I think that would be the apt one to do, to use. What would your wrestler name be? Uh, the Ink Stained Wretch. <laughs> That's really very, very well played. Um, uh, if you had to guess, what would you say is the song you've listened to the most times in your life? The song I've listened to the most times? Um, you know, probably different versions of Amazing Grace. That's the first song I ever sang to my kids for, right after they were born. It was the song I used to kind of get them to sleep at night and sing it over and over and over again. So probably that one. It's my, it's my favorite song. If you could broadcast a song into the head of everyone on the planet all at once, what would you use? What what song you mean? Um, yeah. I thought you were asking me what technology would I use because I'd like to know. Oh, no. It's, <laughs> it's, it's magic is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, maybe the song of everything uh, with Raul Malo on the, on the lead vocal. Um, what was the name of the group? Lost Super Seven, which is sort of this super group they put together. And Raul Malo, who is the the Miami-born lead singer of the Mavericks, sings on it. It's just this beautiful song. The lyrics don't mean anything. They're just they're just they're you know they're just a string of words. But it's just a beautiful song, and and uh, I really like that one a lot. What would your fourteen-year-old self think of who you are today and what you've done since? Uh, my 14-year-old self would be deeply disappointed I was not a Major League Baseball player. <laughs> and, and when I said, but I've written all these books, yeah, books. <laughs> it's just, you know, <laughs> why aren't you a man of action? Why aren't you out there, you know, pro wrestling or, or uh, fighting bad guys and stuff? And it's like, well, writing's a, writing's a lot more fun. And, um, you know, so yeah, I'd be I'd be disappointed in me, but ultimately I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with the way things have turned out so far. Writing's a lot easier on the body than those other things are. Yes, um, absolutely. Well, you know, and you know, I'm 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 sixty I'm sixty two now, so honestly, I would not still be a baseball pitcher. <laughs> I would be sitting on the bench at best, <laughs> being a coach. All right, it is time for you to recommend three people that you'll share this with that you think we might be able to get on who you think might be a good guest. Uh, probably my first one would be Cynthia Barnett, uh, who is an, an author as well. She lives in Gainesville, and uh, her most recent book is The Sound of the Sea, which is about seashells and climate change. It's a terrific book. And she previously wrote a book about rain, which is just a, a wonderful read as well. Um, Tamara Lush. Uh, who uh, we, she's also a writer. She writes uh, cozy mysteries uh, set in Florida and, uh, and romance novels and previously was an Associated Press reporter. And she said she was really attracted to, uh, to writing stories that had a happily ever after because the, the news story she was covering did not. Uh, she lives in St. Petersburg. And then um, a third person, uh, maybe Billy Corbin. Uh, Billy's a documentary filmmaker in Miami and, uh, uh, has made a lot of, uh, his best known work is probably Cocaine Cowboys, but he's also made, um, uh, his most recent one is, is God Forbid, uh, which is the best, uh, viewed, most viewed documentary on Hulu right now. It's about the big, uh, uh, scandal involving the Miami pool boy and the, then the Falwell family. So uh, I bet Billy's got oh, some interesting yeah, yeah. songs. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, anything you can do to, to spread the word to them, we would love to uh, try to get them on at some point down the road. But you've done it, Craig Pittman. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us and our listeners with? Uh, music is the universal language, you know? <laughs> and so um, people, should, uh, people should seek it out and find, find the stories behind the songs. I mean, there's just some interesting stories. Every day on Facebook, I post a, a music clip. Uh, usually it's tied to whoever's birthday is that day, but I also do a Funky Friday clip or uh, on Sundays I do a Sunday Gospel Brunch clip. And it, I really enjoy digging through YouTube looking for live performances like that. It's it's like the closest thing we have to a time machine. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for doing it. It's been a uh, great time talking to you. Thanks. I enjoyed doing it. 
We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared the Intern Gonzalez. Christophus is our executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, we're going back one year to episode number 218 guest. Samantha Romero. She's a Venezuelan-born journalist who lives here in southwest Florida. She says she had them alongside her during all of her adventures as a Girl Scout and while working her way into the world of journalism, including during her first visit to New York City. I listened to this song when I was doing one of the craziest things in my life. Um, I write a lot of movies, and I make a bunch of documentaries, and I try to make one every single year. And in this one documentary... I was talking about how Girl Scouting affects people and how it makes your life better. I was a Girl Scout for 18 years, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. nuts. (laughs) You'll never hear about a Girl Scout that's 18 years old. Um, But I was listening to that song a lot uh, during that time period when I was making movies and making documentaries. And even then, I had one of my documentaries make its way to the AMC theaters in Times Square. Uh, And actually, I flew out to go watch my movie and I sat in the theater watching it happen. It was insane. And I remember listening very clearly, walking the streets in New York, listening to the Beatles, because that's what I love to do. Keep listening.